just as look as I look around my screen, uh, Bishop John Sherrington, who's an auxiliary in Westminster, and uh, Bishop John will be talking about the, the buffer zone today. Bishop John Arnold, the Bishop of Salford, who has responsibility on the Conference for Environmental Matters, and Bishop Nicholas Hudson, also an auxiliary in Westminster Diocese, who will have um, has responsibility particularly for the Synod process. So um, we're happy to, uh, to take your questions. So first of all, um, Bishop Paul, if we could have a sort of two or three minute intervention from each of you, particularly those that obviously have resolutions, uh, buffer zones, Bishop John Sherrington uh, as our lead Bishop uh, for life issues and uh, Bishop John Arnold with regard to being our lead Bishop for environmental matters. So um, yes, should, should we start there? Okay, well, if Bishop John Sherrington would like to, to talk about the uh, the buffer zones. Thank you very much and good afternoon. Firstly, I'll give a little bit of context about why we passed this resolution and then identify some of our concerns that we've noted in the resolution that you should be able to see on fr in front of you now. So we discussed the recent amendment to the public order bill that was proposed by Stella Creasy. It's now known as Clause 9, as the bill continues to be debated, uh, having been passed in Parliament. Clause 9 seeks to criminalise a broad range of activities within the 150 metre radius of an abortion clinic. It extends the trends which have been in certain recent public space protection orders, for example, Bournemouth, Ealing, Richmond, Birmingham, which have included the banning of prayer and the reading of the scriptures in these localities. Our concern is that the implications of this clause extend much more widely and raise individual and raise questions about the relationship between the state and the individual. We pass the resolution because we consider the effects of clause nine to be disproportionate and unnecessary. As I said, it raises serious concerns about the freedom of religion and belief. We condemn all harassment and intimidation of women as they may be approaching an abortion clinic. And we agree with the 2018 Home Office Review that there are already laws and mechanisms in place to protect women from such behavior. Our concern is that this clause goes much further and we're concerned about the protection of religious freedom which is essential for the flourishing and the realization of the dignity of every person. So thank you very much. Bishop Paul, do you want to uh, give your safeguarding update or would you prefer we move on? To yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to say um, as one of the recommendations was the, the regular um, input of safeguarding to the Bishop's Conference and there is a, a significant input. We have half a day on, uh, on safeguarding uh, at the plenary each year and we had a, a training uh, input from CSSA, looking at their, their training materials. Uh, we also looked at the, had an update on the audit process. So there have been a, um, a couple of uh, pilot audits now, and quite a number of other dioceses have, uh, have now signed up to go through the, the pilot audit to see exactly how that would uh, work in, in practice. Next week, there will be an announcement that Safe Spaces England and Wales has a, uh, a provider for the Safe Spaces service. So that would be uh, as very good news. There's been a, a, a quite a long um, tender process. And um, on the 22nd of this month, uh, there'll be an announcement about the, the new provider of that service. And then, of course, we've had the, the final report of, uh, of ICSA. And um, we've, uh, we've had a, a conversation around those recommendations, which is something that CSSA, of course, will be now taking some time to, to look at and see how um, they can continue the work of the implementation of the, of the ICSA recommendations. So that was um, the, 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 the main makeup of the discussion we had around safeguarding at the conference. Okay, Bishop John Arnold would like to give an update on the environment. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. As you know, I'm spokesman for the environment for the Bishop's Conference, and I'm, I'm very pleased to report that there were several moments during our plenary session when the environment was in discussion. But I think we were all aware that we were in plenary during the time of COP27, and the various reports that were coming from that weren't exactly 
um, inspiring uh, in uh, their, their content. Um, it was uh, certainly Antonio Gutierrez's uh, initial uh, speech, which uh, made an impact the way he talked about uh, climate hell and having our foot on the accelerator, which I think had an impact on many of the bishops as a reason for serious discussion. And I was personally rather struck by Rishi Sunak's uh, speech where he said that uh, the UK is taking an international lead. And I thought um, that doesn't seem to be backed up by too many policies, uh, particularly when granting 130 licenses for fossil fuel exploration in the North Sea. So I think there was that atmosphere there, but we did manage for prop, uh, propositions um, passed by the, the bishops. Uh, and the, the most important one, I think, in practical terms, uh, comes in the light of that Cambridge University study on Friday abstinence, uh, where the, the, the is it Department of Land Development had um, studied uh, the Catholics in the United Kingdom and estimate that about a quarter of Catholics actually still observe uh, a no-meat Friday. And uh, this actually has the most impressive um, uh, result of lessening carbon emissions by 55,000 tonnes a year, which is the equivalent to 82,000 people taking return flights from New York to London. This is not to be disregarded. It's really quite an impact. So the bishops were keen to urge a return to that practice, which uh, for, what, 11 centuries since Nicholas I um, imposed it uh, in the ninth century, um, has been seen as a penitential and spiritual act but now we can see it as having uh, a really practical impact on our environment for a very positive degree. So that was um, a very, uh, very useful, I think. And, and to, uh, it will be a testament, I think, uh, if we can engage Catholics to, to make uh, this very practical input. Um, but it's, it's also a testament, isn't it, to those who face hunger and poverty every day and to that concern that people have for um, the environment uh, and all in the light of it being Friday when we are uh, expressing that sense of understanding and remembering the death of Christ and his suffering. So that was a very good and practical proposition. Uh, we also uh, commended strongly the Live Simply Award, which is now undertaken by so many parishes and schools. And I'm pleased to say Oscott Seminary has also um, taken up the challenge because it it's offers so, so many practical everyday things that people can do without a great deal of inconvenience, which will make a very serious impact, particularly if it's done in large numbers. So that was commended. The, the Bishops Conference also asked dioceses to um, keep up to date their targets for the reduction of carbon emissions to a carbon zero and to be ready to report on those targets and the progress they're making regularly. And then for ourselves, the fourth proposition was that uh, we will be inviting Dr. Carmody Gray to speak to us on that sense of leadership uh, within um, environmental matters. And now you probably know Dr. Carmody Gray has made a, quite a, a significant impact um, in the sense of faith with hope and the urgency of action. So I think that we will benefit very much if uh, it's possible for her to address us in the coming months. Um, I'm also pleased to take questions when they arise. Thank you. Ellen Teague. Yes, recarbon emissions, Bishop John. Thank you for your presentation and thank you for all your work on the environment. Um, yes, Catholic premises reducing their emissions but I know that you met with members of and prayed with members of Christian Climate Action outside the Bishops' Conference meeting, and they're pushing for the bishops to say more on advocacy on fossil fuels, re the big polluters, the big polluting countries, and ours is one of them, and the big polluting um, members of the corporate world, such as sort of Shell and BP and so on. Um, that doesn't feature in the statement. Was it looked at? And are you willing to go further as CCA requested? Well, uh, yes, I, I think there's every reason for us uh, to be um, advocating 
uh, and, and protesting to uh, the, the polluters. But uh, whether it's to be done um, through the Bishops' Conference, I'm not sure if that's most effective. But what COP27, I hope, will show is that we're not taking the measures that we need to be taking and uh, that we need to respond. Uh, and then maybe as a church, uh, as a single unit, maybe this is the time for us to, to speak up. But that wasn't among the actual propositions. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Just on the point on Live Simply. Um, yes, I did a Live Simply assessment of the parish in Westminster yesterday. And what uh, they would be in, very interested in is the bishops going a little bit further than the statement that's been made. For example, bishops promising to mention the Live Simply Award when they visit parishes and schools and expressing their willingness to actually present awards. Is that something you feel bishops will find time for? Well, I think that given that hundreds of parishes and schools are happily getting on with it simply, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, we need to be making special occasions of awarding the Live Simply, um, but uh, that so many people are showing interest and it's parishes and schools and different organisations. Uh, I think that the any publicity that we can give to it and to show that there are easy measures that can be undertaken uh, that do have an effect, then I think the, the more broadly we can advertise the existence of Live Simply and encourage it, the better it will be. Thank you. If we could move on to Bishop Nicholas um, to talk about the, uh, the Synod process, please. Thank you, Bishop Paul. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I think the first thing I'd wish to say is that we're committed to the synodal process. That was the message I took away from the bishops as we gathered to discuss the next steps of the synodal journey. Also that it's a journey that's going to help <coughs> deepen the sense of mission in our own diocese too. We're waking up to the fact that we're not so much missionary disciples as disciples with a mission. And this whole process is impressing upon us that we need that we discern that mission first and foremost by listening by listening deeply. In every diocese, we've now received the working document for the continental stage, the DCS. <clears throat> We're committed to take the DCS into our diocese and to listen to how it's received. Each bishop will discern how he should do this. Having listened, the bishop will, with the help of people representing a cross-section of the diocese, prepare a diocesan response. This he will forward to the Bishop's Conference Secretariat for it then to become part of a national response. Every diocese is asked to consider the CDS under three headings. What resonates with all that was shared in the synodal conversations you had? What is discordant? What priorities does it suggest for discussion at the first session of the Synodal Assembly in October 2023? It's all of a piece with what has taken place already. We began synodal conversations just over a year ago. We listened to one another's experience of journeying together as church. We gathered these into syntheses from parish groups, individuals, lay associations, religious and schools. Bishops, priests, religious, laymen and women worked in Dawson groups to form these into a picture of every diocese. We came together in Darson gatherings to listen to the picture that was emerging from all that had been shared. Bishops discerned in the light of all that, what should be the shape of their diocesan syntheses? And these went forward to become part of a national synthesis. After that was finalized, the bishops met to discern the reflection they would wish to accompany it. These two pieces of work went forward to be considered by the international group gathered in Frascati to read through 112 national syntheses. The CDS we have is the fruit of their work. The national response to the CDS will be taken in February to the Continental Stage Ecclesial Assembly in Prague by a delegation from England and Wales. Our delegation will consist of four people who will physically attend the Prague meeting but they'll have the support of 10 others who will remain here in England and Wales and with whom they will share and consult about the process <clears> by video connection. The final two days of the Continental Assembly will be for bishops only. These bishops will remain in Prague to create a continental synthesis based on all they will have heard 
during the previous five days. Meanwhile, dioceses are already beginning to ask themselves how the DCS might inspire continued synodal growth in their diocese now. It's striking how much the CDS echoes the observations made last summer in our national synthesis and the bishop's accompanying reflection. Most striking is how it affirms the deep love which is at the heart of the church. But the CDS also captures the size of the mission that stretches out before us. The call to engage in the life of the church, those who stand on the edge of our communities, women, young people, LGBTQ plus people, people of color, people with disabilities, those in prison, those in irregular marriages. Many of these did engage in synodal conversation and their voices heard in many parts of the diocesan and national syntheses. But there are many others towards whom dioceses still need to reach out and begin listening to. People of other denominations, people of other religions, the poor. And it's waking us up to the fact that there are still 90% of Catholics in England and Wales who didn't take part in synodal conversations and that we need to reach out to them too. What we're hearing in short is a call to deepen our own sense of mission here in England and Wales to help Catholics believe they are disciples with a mission. That mission is about drawing into the life of the church all who stand on the outside looking in. It's about enabling an encounter as Pope Francis likes to say, enabling an encounter with those who feel themselves to be on the periphery or even outside the tent, which is the church, to believe we encounter Christ in each one of them and to help them encounter Christ for themselves. I shared with the bishops a nice illustration of this, which I was given during the pandemic. I was visiting a priest who had a huge food bank in the East End of London. As we stood watching the great numbers of people queuing there, and indeed interacting with them, he told me, you know, I've spent much more time outside the church than inside it during the pandemic, and I'm realising it's where I prefer to be. He's grasping the size of the mission, that it's about enlarging the walls of the tent of the parish. I think this synodal process is helping all of us to grasp more fully the size of the mission, and we're realising that while our listening needs to go upwards into the continental discernment, we need at the same time to continue listening to our context, asking ourselves what more we can be doing here and now to be more synodal, to try and listen better and to deepen the opportunities for encounter. Very concretely, we need to be asking how we can develop the structures we have already in place. I mean the diocesan pastoral councils, ecumenical commissions, deaneries, and so on, to make them more synodal and so encourage a deeper sense of mission here at home. I hope that's helpful by way of an update, and of course I'm very happy to take questions. We have a question from Sylvia, Sylvia Gassetti. Yes, I would like to ask a question from Bishop Mason and one from Bishop Hudson as well. So Bishop Mason, um, after the state inquiry, will something change? Have the bishop decided to change something following the inquiry? And, you know, the same thing uh, to Bishop Hudson about the synodal process. Is there any new, new things which is worth, you know? Yes, uh, I think before the, before the, um, the inquiry had con concluded, in fact, the the church had taken some very fairly radical action to look at its whole safeguarding practices. And there was the establishment, as you know, of the, the Catholic Safeguarding Standards Agency. So in one sense, it was, it, it was really ahead of the curve in that respect in identifying what um, it, it, thought, it thought needed to be looked at. And the, the establishment of uh, an agency which would have far more um, power you like if you like with regard to audit and being able to not just advise but to be able to ensure that dioceses were were complying with safeguarding standards uh, that was a, a very important step and i think moving away from the what's often been regarded as the the tick box approach to safeguarding this huge change towards a, a standards-based 
approach to safeguarding, to see whether people have reached the, the necessary competences to, to approach safeguarding matters. And that's all been part of, a, uh, of the move towards what they, they talk about, a, a culture of safeguarding in the church. And I think in terms of what the church has done to, to meet these changes has been quite significant in terms of that change of, of culture. So this is an ongoing process. The, the recommendations have come through from ICSA and they are something which um, very much help shape the work of, of CSSA uh, and, and help inform how it, uh, it implements those, uh, those recommendations. So it's ongoing work. Um, and the, the CSSA is very much um, now, uh, you know, in, in post and um, moving ahead very clearly and constructively with the implementation of the, of the recommendations. Shall I respond to Sylvia Bishop-Ball? Please do, Bishop Nicholas. Thanks for your question, Sylvia. And um, there's both newness and continuity. Uh, we've been for over a year now in a listening phase and the Synod Office in Rome is absolutely clear that uh, we're still very much in a listening phase. Uh, but part of the newness that that listening has yielded is that many people have said, certainly in England and Wales, and it was echoed in the CDS as well, that it's the first time that they've had the experience of being uh, asked what they feel about what it means to be church. And that has really yielded all sorts of really helpful responses, not least the deep love, which is at the heart of the church. And, but there's, we are at the, at the same time moving into a completely new stage. Now that we've received this uniquely new document, the CDS, uh, back from the Frascati process, it's now a new experience for us to hear the fruit of, of that reading of the syntheses of 112 different um, Episcopal conferences. And as we take that back into our own countries, then part of the newness is that it makes us ask ourselves, what's the implication of all that we're hearing from the Universal Church, as well as what we heard from England and Wales, in terms of its implications for our own mission here at home? Thank you, Bishop Nicholas. And we have a question from Michael Haynes from LifeSite News. Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you, Bishops. Um, my question is for Bishop Hudson and also for Bishop Arnold, um, tying into the synodal process. Um, it, the synodal report from England and Wales, obviously it mentions um, LGBT groups and masses. Um, now, Bishop Arnold, uh, in your Diocese of Salford, you've been very public in support of LGBT masses for, for quite some time. Um, and there's a number of dioceses in the country with these masses. Uh, what's not so clear is whether Catholic teaching on chastity is promoted and taught at these masses. I know in, um, in 2012, uh, then Archbishop Nichols, he... Um, he wrote that LGBT masses had to be underpinned by moral principles concerning chastity and the church's teaching on sexual activity. Uh, he said that all who participate in the masses are called to live the church's teaching through an ongoing conversion of life. Um, so my, my question is, in these masses, which are going, um, which are occurring in quite a few dioceses, um, is the Catholic teaching about sexuality and chastity and conversion of heart being taught? And are priests ensuring that Holy Communion is not offered to people who are clearly living contrary to the church's teaching on chastity? Uh, if I were to make a, a response to that, I think the first thing is that uh, Pope Francis asks us to welcome everybody uh, and to accept people as they are, in, made in the image of God. And uh, I think the Mass should focus primarily on the message in the scriptures of the day, uh, that we are concerned about that ongoing conversion of all of us. And when we have an LGBT mass, uh, there are an awful lot of people who are not LGBT, who are there because they're family and friends and who are merely concerned to be there in solidarity. Uh, and I think that, uh, yes, we, we say that the, the gospel teaching in its fullness certainly includes questions of sexuality and celibacy, uh, uh, but uh, let's, let's form a community where people feel they're welcome, that uh, they're being encouraged to, to, to be part of church, 
uh, and with all of us, and none of us is perfect, uh, to be on that road of conversion to, to what God wants us all to be. Um, and uh, that we will decipher in different ways according to who we are. But I, I, I don't think that there's an, a need for uh, an LGBT mass simply to be about a, a homily on in celibacy. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me at all. It's a question of being together in prayer, asking who am I, what is my mission, uh, who am I called to be, and we take that gently and, uh, and reject nobody. Because, um, you know, if the wonderful thing in the Gospels is that even with the greatest of critics who came to him, Jesus never turned anybody away. He never said, get lost. You don't agree with me. I don't want anything to do with you. He, he listened. He argued with them. He, he put his questions and he never sent them away. And this is, I think, something that Pope Francis wants to emphasize for all of us, that we're welcome in the church. And if we're welcomed, then we are guided by church teaching and become part of one communion in faith. Thank you, Bishop John. Any further questions for Nula? Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm wondering about the connection between the um, safeguarding stuff and the synod stuff, because I can see how it's important that we get to the point where um, we're listening to people and we're inviting people into this enlarged tent, but it needs to be a safe place. And the stuff that's the safeguarding um plans are, are great and they need to be widespread but there's also um the acknowledgement of what's gone before and how that is formally represented across the whole country and um people feel that they've been listened to and this is a safe place it's not going to happen again and i just wonder how that uh, is going to be carried forward I'll come to that one first. Thanks for the question. Uh, the engagement with survivors, it's kind of at the core of what we, we try to do. The, the Elliott Review as well was, you know, talking about how we need to cast a wider net as possible to, to capture the, the views and the feelings of survivors when it comes to anything to do with safeguarding. Um, we are establishing an, uh, a safeguarding advisory committee with the um, the Catholic Safeguarding Agency. We have safeguarding, we have survivor representatives on safe spaces, England and Wales. And in fact, the, um, the during this tender process I was talking about for um, the new provider for the service for safe spaces, England and Wales, um, we had four survivors who, who really were, their, their, their input on that was really quite significant. And I think the more that we do that, and listen to what they have to say to help form and shape what we do, then the better I think we respond to, to meeting what they feel needs to be done by the church to, to try and create the whole church to be a, a safe space in, in which they can operate. So it's that survivor engagement, which it happens at every single level of what I do in safeguarding. And we, we always encourage it and encourage it more wherever we can. I come in there, uh, Bishop Paul, just to say that um, I was I was um, pleased that uh, so many people took the opportunity of synodal conversations around England and Wales and around the world, as reflected in the DCS, to express their hurt and their disappointment at um, the degree of um, sexual abuse that has taken uh, place in the church in different parts of the world. Over, over so many decades. And I think that um, it gives us the, the opportunity um, as church in England and Wales to announce these very measures that Bishop Paul is, is, is reporting all the more loudly. And in a spirit of safeguarding being good news, we, we don't often say that, but safeguarding is very good news, very good news for the safety and, and security of everyone who comes to church and comes towards the church. And it's all part and parcel of the ethos of accompaniment, which is really at the heart of this synodal process, that we need to let people know that, that if they come knocking at the door of the church, then they will be um, accompanied in a secure way, whatever their stage and status of life. 
And I think it's all of a piece. Thank you, Bishop Nicholas. We still have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, Patrick, if you could just uh, let us know where you're from and uh, unmute. Thanks. Hello, Patrick Hudson from The Tablet. This is is to all the bishops, really, because your meeting will have gone on under the uh, sort of shadow, I suppose, of the financial crisis that's occurring at the moment. Um, Obviously, you've uh, autumn statement was yesterday, so <laughs> you won't have anything on that as such. But I just wondered whether uh, a consciousness of uh, the cost of living uh, informed any of the discussions at all, uh, not least because lots of the initiatives you're talking about do cost money. If I could just say, we did hear a considerable amount about our various caritas the movements in, um, in organisations in, in our various dioceses. And I think they are keenly aware of the changing circumstances for the many people for whom they have a care. Uh, and uh, that um, very impressive what, what our Caritas organisations do. It's very important, though, and I think we realise that, that you can't just leave it to the organisation. This must be part of our sensitivity, each and every one of us. Uh, and that in every parish, um, there, there needs to be that sense of understanding and response. Uh, and we've seen that in so many food banks. Uh, uh, if they're not necessarily of the parish, uh, they're food banks to which parishes are contributing. Uh, and I think there is uh, a, an awareness that around us, whether they're within the Catholic community or local in our community, there are many people in need. And I do believe that from what I was hearing, that there is a, a, a generous response, but we can always be more generous, can't we? If I could just add to that, uh, Bishop John, one of the things we spoke about um, at plenary was vocations. And talking about when the church is seen to be working in a way of, of outreach and reaching out to the poor, it's where actually we, we shine, we have great reach. And when, especially when young people see that we're engaged with the real issues of the day, it, it, it's, it's a great boon to, to, to vocations. So it's a, a very important thing for us to always be aware of that when we, when we do the things that the, you know, when we're on the ground with the people where they need it, actually the, the church has an opportunity really to shine. I think just adding to that, we heard a lot about the role of our schools, obviously in the care of children and families. Uh, that's not only, first of all, that that's, schools are a listening place for children to speak and a safe school could help children to speak out about many problems at home. Secondly, we know that the presentation of the children in terms of the need for breakfast, meals, um, they, is linking into the Caritas work and other structures and organizations, charities in dioceses to provide food and meals and vouchers, etc. So the schools really do touch the heart of many of our societal problems through the children. And we're very much listening to them and working with this vast network of schools to improve the situation for every child gifted by God. If I could just add to to what uh, the other bishops have said, uh, through the lens of of the Synod, um, what what is very striking is that um, the way the Synod is in many ways uh, implicitly rather than explicitly so far, asking ourselves to revisit the vision of the new evangelization as set out by Pope Francis at the beginning of his pontificate in Evangelii Gaudium, um, and the fact that an essential part of that vision of new evangelization is social outreach to the poor. And part of the impetus towards a deeper sense of mission that, uh, that we're hoping for as uh, dioceses reflect on the implications of the DCS and the whole synodal journey for their diocese is that dioceses and the local church will ask themselves, what is it that we're doing already quite well in terms of realizing the new evangelization and how can we build on it? And part of the conversation in anticipating in recent months, the cost of living crisis, which is now upon us, is that we've 
heard from all sorts of different quarters that the need for food banks and vouchers such as have been really um, led on by the Roman Catholic Church alongside other charitable organizations during the pandemic is going to be needed all the more. And it's an opportunity for us to uh, ask ourselves, and I think this is part of what the synodal process calls us to, to ask ourselves, yes, but as we develop our social outreach and celebrate it, how, how do we make it more evangelizing? How do we also make it more of an encounter with Christ and a way of drawing people into relationship with him? Thank you. Yes, yeah, sorry, we, we have a, a question from uh, Ellen, a couple of questions from Ellen Teague in the chat, which we'll come to. Um, Joe, you've had your hand up for a little while, if you'd like to just um, ask your question. Um, young people, um, now that the lockdown is over, um, did you talk much about youth activities and particularly, are any of you going to Lisbon to the World Youth Day? Uh, as far as I know, several of the bishops have signed up for World Youth Day. Um, and certainly what one of the um, mentions of, of youth and evangelization was within the, the field of um, uh, environmental care, because it's it, very obvious, I think, to all the bishops that um, the response among the young people is very impressive and very urgent. And uh, we've all been visiting schools where there are all sorts of projects relating to uh, care for our common home and, uh, you know, rewilding and planting and bees and all sorts of things going on in our schools, which is delightful to see. But I, I honestly believe that if we can show that the church is making a priority of environmental care, that uh, it will draw an awful lot of young people to that sense of a practical side to their faith and something that they want to pursue. It, it did come up the question um, of, of the of the World Youth Day, which of course is a, is a great opportunity. And um, before I had an opportunity to, uh, to, to see what interest there might be within the military, uh, I've had quite a number of requests from young people uh, from all three services asking whether we could, as a bishopric, take a, a group over there. So I hope to take a, a group of about a dozen over there. But it just, it just struck me that, you know, the, again, that, that reach of the church and of young people wanting to engage. Often we have a narrative of the, there's a, there's a great degree of disaffiliation, but in fact, there is still on the ground, there's a great deal of interest in these things. Um, and a World Youth Day is a great way to, to galvanize that interest. So uh, a number of bishops will be taking groups and I'll certainly be one of them. And could parishes do more? I mean, there was one, once upon a time there were youth clubs and now there aren't very many and, and all the council youth clubs have closed. Um, have, they look, have you looked at um, more outreach? Um, because it's often for, for, for young people, it's, it's not a case of sitting around being religious. It's a case of building community, being together, having somewhere to go. And being Catholic is quite weird if you're a young person, unless you go to a Catholic school. If you're in a if you're in a in a state school and you you you're, you might be the only person in your class that's Catholic, so um, I, I don't know personally. I would love to see more more um, more youth activities in parishes. And Bishop Nicholas. Yeah, can I say a word, um, Joe, um, in in light of your conversation and uh, in light of um, my own experience in um, in this diocese of Westminster, which I belong to, which I think links up. Uh, with your with your first point about uh, World Youth Day, um, we've got a, a group of um, very impressive young adults who range actually from about eighteen to twenty five. So you can imagine um, you've got some recent school leavers, uh, some undergraduates, and some uh, young um, people who've started work either recently or quite recently uh, who who belong to a group called Looking to Lisbon, and it's obvious. Uh, it's obvious why. And um, part of the incentive and um, a very well judged incentive for them to come is that they will be half funded if they also commit to uh, training in youth work during this coming year under the auspices of the diocesan um, youth centre and also to have a role in facilitating among all the young pilgrims at World Youth Day, uh, prayer time and reflection, uh, not least reflection on vocation. It's all connected, isn't it? 
And um, because uh, we're all acutely aware of the need to foster vocation, not just vocations to religious life and priesthood, but also to marriage and to the single life, but also much more than that, uh, to foster a culture of vocation, to realizing one's baptismal calling, the calling of each one of us to share in the mission of Christ, which again is so um, so much at the heart really of the vision of the synodal process. So all of that's going to be in the mix in our world, in our approach to world youth day. And of course, um, these days we're very conscious of, and it's a, it's a really, uh, it's an enriching perspective always to be asking myself, yes, but what's going to be the legacy? What's going to be the legacy of this experience of World Youth Day? So uh, these young people uh, that we've engaged in this way are also asked to commit to giving themselves to uh, continued youth work for at least a year after mm -hmm. World Youth Day. That's part of the contract. So we're very hopeful that uh, of course, that will be a means of keeping in touch with them as well, continuing to form them, not only for their youth work, and to give them the opportunity to talk about how they're calling others to uh, come and join in the youth work at the local level, but also to keep all of them abreast with developments in the synodal process and how what's happening at the continental level is actually going to impact back down to us at the parishes. And really should impact on the lives of young people, both those who are engaged in the church and those who might potentially be engaged in the church. Can also. I just add one point there? That is that recently uh, the March for Life, the mass that was held at St. George's Cathedral in Southwark, and then the act of witness of 10 million lives too many, many young adults were present and also in university chaplaincies, there's a tendency for those studying medicine, pharmacy, to be raising many more questions about the theology of life and the good of unborn life. So young people are very passionate about rights and about um, the rights of people. So I suppose one of the points of context that led to our statement about uh, the buffer zones was because Lord Sharp, the permanent undersecretary of state, commenting on clause nine, said regarding the public order bill, I am unable, but only because of clause nine, to make a statement that in my view, the provisions of the bill are presently compatible with convention rights, the European Convention of Human Rights. So this clause is really touching into very serious issues about human rights, uh, freedom of religion and freedom of belief, and also the way in which uh, influence is being used and then broadened in vague, uncertain terms. So rights are passionate, are important for young people, and I certainly wouldn't want to exclude the importance of the good of human life from its very beginning to its end uh, by young people. Thank you, Bishop John. Ellen, you've been waiting patiently. Can we have your question? Well, I'd already got in a few, so I didn't want to <laughs> But um, following up on um, Patrick's question about the financial crisis and the very interesting answer about the work of Caritas and the generous outreach, charitable outreach of parishes, but isn't it the case that advocacy on structural injustice and equality is important too? So do the bishops feel that justice and peace work needs promotion as well as the charitable outreach? I'm thinking of here of links with groups like the Tax Justice Network, who've done work on the tax system and the inequalities there, that this work is very important to engage with as well. Any of the bishops like to, to pick that one up as a, as a starter for 10? Well, I think just, <laughs> I mean, certainly it, practice varies across dioceses. But certainly increasingly, uh, when we talk about Caritas, we talk about deep relationship also with justice and peace groups and the fora that are held in various dioceses where these different people come together. And in a sense, the work of Caritas in some dioceses is not just about food and vouchers, but actually moving towards empowerment, empowerment about what, how to eat well, moving towards advocacy as well. So I think one would need to probably look broadly uh, across the diocese and also then uh, look at the work of CSAN and some of its activities. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a very important. It's a, it's a very good question as well in the sense of it is so much the direction of travel of, of Pope Francis and how he would have us getting out there to, to the field hospital to see the real issues in the world around us and the structural issues and not be blind to those as well. And I, I think very much the work that we see through um, through CSAN uh, is, is very supportive to, to parishes and being able to raise awareness of a lot of these issues. Because sometimes, you know, we're, we're not always aware of the of, of, of some of these structural injustices until, until they're pointed out. And so I would say that is very much more on the radar these days than perhaps it has been um, in the past. So I, I think it's something that the church is very much uh, aware of at the moment and seeking to, to, to speak out on. Bishop Nicholas. I would add a point as well, um, very much in support of, um, of what Ellen's saying really, that um, uh, for all the Caritas work we're doing, uh, we always need to be mindful of, um, of the need to do more advocacy. And um, certainly um, when we were looking to appoint a new um, justice and peace coordinator in, in the diocese that, that I belong to, certainly uh, one of the uh, strongest supporters, possibly the strongest supporter, was the director of Caritas, who said, we've become strong on our social outreach, but we're still not making enough space for advocacy. And so uh, under, the, under the leadership of our Justice and Peace coordinator, and also the priest chair of the Justice and Peace Commission, our advocacy is growing and we have um, a network that is growing of, of Justice and Peace contacts in parishes and so it feels it feels as if, as if we're growing and more advocacy is is happening through that body thank you thank you i'm just a little conscious obviously that we're, we're approaching one o'clock so uh, patrick we will come to you i'm just going to quickly invite anybody who hasn't yet asked a question that may want to to do so now otherwise uh, obviously we'll move on to patrick anybody else that hasn't spoken that may wish to ask a question Okay, floor's yours, Patrick. Thank you very much. Uh, this is to Bishop Sherrington and to Bishop Mason. Uh, linked to both the buffer zones and also Bishop Mason, when uh, the ICSA report came out, there was a specific point in it regarding the, uh, regarding the seal of the confession, which uh, you addressed uh, on the BBC. I just wondered whether uh, these sort of issues give you any sense of a, a degree of incomprehension of the church and its position at a sort of governmental or official level uh, and is any of that a concern at all? I mean it is and of course it's a it's an extremely sensitive and difficult area. ICSA itself noted that priests who would have described ever having had such a person a paedophile a perpetrator of such crimes in the confessional was something that they did not come across. Anecdotally, when I speak to, to fellow bishops or to priests, it's, it's not something, again, that um, I, I, I ever have, have come across. And my point that I, uh, was, that I made on my interview on the, on the Sunday programme was, if there is any way in which we can have contact with these people and an opportunity to, to turn their lives around, to get them to, to encourage them to report themselves to the authorities, if if we had a if we were designated mandatory reporters, and we we actually had to report what we heard in a confessional, then that one point of contact that we've possibly got with these people is 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 lost. No one would ultimately come to a, a confessional if they thought they were going to be immediately reported to the authorities. I mean, they could report themselves to the authorities without necessarily going via the confessional. So that was the at a practical level. It I see why it raises a degree of incomprehension. But in reality, I just wonder whether, it, is it happening? Is it the case that people are, are coming to confession, confessing these sins, and pre are, 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 you know, not saying anything about it, even if they wanted to, they, the fact is they haven't heard it in the first place, um, by, by all accounts. I don't know if my, my brother bishops here on, on the screen would um, have a similar experience, but um, as I say, it's, it's not 
in the experience of Ixa in how they, uh, when they looked into this and of other priests themselves that uh, someone guilty of such crimes would avail themselves of the confessional in the first place. So I think it's just worth pointing that out, that um, this is more, perhaps it becomes an issue theoretically, uh, where maybe, you know, a rare instance that it could happen, but it's certainly not a, a, a common occurrence. I think, and Patrick addressed the question also to me, I would say that uh, we have a, the task of communicating our understanding of the seal of confession, as Bishop Mason said, the, the strength of that, at the same time, indicating our policies and the ways in which we protect uh, children and adults at risk. I suppose coming back to the point about the buffer zones is that the need for uh, us as bishops to hear the legal expertise about uh, the way in which parliamentary bills are uh, proceeding, the way in which religious freedom must be protected, uh, the freedom of belief, the freedom uh, to pray, and also to find those ways in which that is included uh, in the Equality Act, because religion is a protected characteristic, and therefore to use our place to make our point about why we would disagree with uh, Clause 9 and why we consider that it's disproportionate and unnecessary. But in order to do that, we need to listen well to those who have legal expertise. And I think that this particular resolution comes out of that context of listening, listening to those who have supported women who have benefited by those who gather outside abortion clinics, uh, the legal expertise about criminalizing activity and the meaning of the word influence, and then this whole relationship with the European Convention of Human Rights. So we need that dialogue, that listening, in order to make statements. Right, I think we're, we're just about out of time, if uh, there are no further questions. Um, thank you ever so much, uh, Bishop Paul, if you want to just wrap up. Yes, no, thank you very much. And um, it's a great opportunity when all of the uh, the bishops come together to discuss all of these issues. And there are so many things which we which we do deal with. And I think in the, that the, the past week together, um, we've had that you know great opportunity to to look at these questions of the of the environment as being very much uh, front and center, and the synodal process and the ongoing work of the um, of, of the safeguarding, which is it's it's here to stay. It's at the, it's just at the heart of all we do now. And I just would like to say, I mean, I, I end on the on a safeguarding note. Um, we recently had the bishops together in in Birmingham and safeguarding coordinators, and the the communal effort of the Catholic community to try and put this right and to, to, to work on it with, with, with every effort to, to start putting the, 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 these wrongs right, if we can ever put them right, but to make a safe space for the, for the church in the future. Um, I would just like to give an assurance that, you know, this is so core and central and there's so much effort going into it and to, to give, that, uh, that, give that assurance.